Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sapphire Wire podcast. I'm Lisa Johnston. And I'm Kyle Johnston. And it's been an interesting time here right after the election. There's been a lot of discussion about why weren't the Democrats successful and what were the problems, what could they have possibly done differently. And there were actually a recent series of articles published on Daily Coast mm-hmm. uh, written by someone who was very connected with a variety of candidates and campaigns reflecting on what he saw as some of the problems. And as we mentioned last time, it was a bit reminiscent of the series that I had written right after the 2012 election cycle, uh, reflecting on my two experiences as a candidate and what I saw as some of the issues and problems. Now, I've uh, put that back out there for folks to take a gander at if they didn't have a chance to see it the first time or for those folks who may not have been ready for it the first time. <laughs> uh, the first time I put that out there, uh, got a wide range of receptions, to say the least. Yeah, some chilly. Some people thanked you for uh, being brave enough to put it out there, and some people were outright hostile uh, through either nasty calls or emails demanding that you, you know, take those posts down. And that's frustrating and disappointing for me because I think that if we're going to move forward as a party and improve as a party, which is extraordinarily important given that we're the minority in the state of Kansas, we really need to take a look at ourselves after every election cycle and see, you know, what were the issues, what are the barriers getting in the way, and what can we do differently? Yeah, and some of the arguments that people have against that is that, you know, you're putting our playbook out there, and, and <laughs> my, my uh, response to that is that we're, like, dwindling on the edge of extinction, and I don't think anybody's going to want to pick up that playbook unless it's a whatnot to do. Right. It's a losing playbook. It's <laughs> yeah. like the, the worst team in the conference or something. So, yeah, I, I think that that's a, an unfounded criticism. I, I think that uh, it's definitely better to be honest and be open and take a look at what we're doing. Now, one of the questions that always comes up is, you know, in addition to why aren't we successful, is this notion of why do we have such a difficult time recruiting candidates and why don't we have more candidates on deck and why don't more candidates want to run multiple times? And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, And I'll start with a reason that I think uh, is pervasive for a lot of folks. And one is the reception that you get as a new person in the party. Now, I had the belief and the idea coming in to the party wanting to run for the first time that I would be greeted with open arms and people would be very excited to have another enthusiastic person Mm -hmm. in the fold who wanted to get out there and do some good things. And granted, there were a few people who felt that way. But... At the same time, there were a very significant number of people who were quite cold uh, and all the way, ranging all the way, I would say, to hostile. Yeah. That I was coming on the scene and trying to run for office. And uh, that is a huge problem. Uh, We're already the minority party in the state, and we don't do ourselves any favors by uh, being chilly or trying to rebuff people or putting them through some kind of a test or mm-hmm. a hazing period. And there are all these attitudes about people who are newer to the scene that they haven't paid their dues yet. Uh, and I think that that's just unfortunate thinking. And we really need to get away from that and get past that. And another thing that I think is really unproductive is people get locked in for certain races to this idea of whose turn they think it is. Yeah. And some of that's based on kind of perceived name recognition or, you know, uh, paying your dues. Uh, 
but even in cases where candidates have been in office for quite some time and they're well known within the Democratic Party and probably in uh, the state legislature, outside of that, they're really almost unknown. And a good example of that is the recent gubernatorial candidate, Paul Davis. So mm -hmm. he is a extremely well-known figure in the Democratic Party, well-known uh, and liked in Topeka, but outside of those circles, um, almost no recognition. And we saw that in a lot of the polls. It's like... Especially the early yeah, polls. People yeah, people just did not know who he was. Exactly. So one of the other things that's interesting is that it does appear from seeing the party operate and the leadership operate for the two cycles that I ran, that the leaders in the party really want to be the ones to decide who the nominees are, who the candidates are in particular races, and they don't certainly come right out and advertise that. But uh, the truth of the matter is they really don't want it to be left to the rank-and-file Democrats, mm -hmm. the voters. They want to be influencing and guiding things and getting the person to the nomination that they really want to be the nominee for those races. And there are a variety of ways that they try to influence things uh, that are really interesting without, you know, usually the state party doesn't come right out and endorse anyone. I've n never seen an endorsement, but it was interesting this cycle, they gave some people money yeah. who had competitive primaries yeah. that gave it to one candidate and not another. Yeah, which is a de facto endorsement. In my yeah, opinion. exactly. Or in the case of when I ran, uh, sometimes key people in the party mm -hmm. will give endorsements. Uh, so that's something that they do. But ultimately, they have these litmus tests that they're trying to put people up against to see if they pass the test. And what's really sad, too, and many people don't realize, is that occasionally there is no quote-unquote chosen candidate for a given race, and somebody is the flag bearer and they are the candidate. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if the leadership doesn't like whoever that person is, uh, they'll either not get support, and that's probably the majority of people don't get any uh, high level of support from the party, or in some small number of cases, I actually have heard stories about the party working against, yeah, directly against their own candidates. Yeah. And this is just reprehensible reprehensible to me. It just blows my mind that we would do this as a party just because there is a person who you don't 100% like or think meets whatever your idea of who the candidate should be. You're going to work against someone who's in your own party to make way for someone who's in the other party yeah. to be in the office. That makes no sense to me. Yeah. And we're, again, we're, uh, you know, we're down seats and we really need uh, candidates in office and candidates, candidates running races. And even if you have kind of personal problems with individuals, as is the case that you were talking about, um, you know, let them run their race and, you know, let them do their thing. You don't have to support them, but you don't have to work against them. Right. You don't have to sabotage. That's yeah. ridiculous. I mean, it's you know, it's if, just insane. If in the end that person were to win and you pick up a seat, great. Then you have a person that you can, you know, work with uh, in the legislature. But if, yeah. they, if they don't run, they can't win and you, you're guaranteed to lose a seat. But the thing is, they don't think it's great. That's the problem. That's why they're working against it. They they don't think, well, they're not my favorite person, but if they get in there, at least we have one more person in our party. They're not thinking about it like that. They're thinking, 
the people have to fit into this uh, idea of who I think they should be. And if they don't, then I'm going to work against them. And it's really interesting, some of the um, stories that were shared in the Daily Coast piece. And I also uh, had noted this in my, my own series, that it seems like a lot of people in the party have this attitude that if you don't do it our way, we'll take you down. Yeah. And sometimes that's stated fairly explicitly. Yeah. And that's just not okay. Yeah, and it seemed like in the 2010 races, the other issue kind of related to all that is they were kind of playing for the minimum. So they knew the minimum number of seats. They you mean have... 2012? Yeah, sorry, 2012. The minimum number of seats they would need uh, to kind of maintain a... Senate coalition. A coalition, yeah. and that's what they were aiming for. So rather than kind of aiming high and then hoping you meet somewhere in the middle, they aimed... Uh, for the bare minimum, and then, of course, fell below that. Fell so. one short, and then we had a, a fairly sizable group who had between 45 and yeah. 50% of the votes in their district. Yeah. yeah, it was really bad. So poor resource planning, poor strategic planning, just kind of <laughs> poor planning all around. Now, one of the other elements that comes into play with who gets to be a candidate and what kind of treatment you get by the party is something that I called royal family syndrome in my second installment of my series and this is something that's pretty pervasive connected people really do get the red carpet rolled out for them in ways that people who don't have party connections will never see and what's sad to me is that these individuals are not always the best or the right choice for the particular office but because of who they are who they're related to who Mm -hmm. they know Uh, they get this special treatment and that doesn't do us a service as a party. Now, one of the examples from this election cycle that really just uh, drove me up the wall is not from Kansas. It's from Kentucky. And the U.S. Senate candidate in Kentucky, Allison Lundergan Grimes, Mm -hmm. uh, was challenging Mitch McConnell and was not successful. But it was really interesting to me to kind of hear her background and to hear about her. Her father was formerly, for many, many years, the state party chair mm-hmm. in Kentucky and was close personal friends with Bill and Hillary Clinton, <laughs> uh, who incidentally came to campaign many times for Miss Allison during her race. Now, I'm sure she's a fine young woman. She seems very nice, and I think she's tried to be a good public servant but one of the things that just set me off was I heard someone on a news program refer to her as a self-made woman and I absolutely hit the roof because in terms of her political career nothing could be further from the truth if she was Allison Smith and her father had not been party chair and uh, not been friends with Bill and Hillary Clinton there is absolutely no way she would have gotten the support or attention. Certainly the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee wouldn't be coming to run ads for her as they did for part of the election cycle. Bill and Hillary wouldn't have been coming to Kentucky. So I I think, you know, let's be honest that the playing field in a lot of these cases is not level. And people do get special treatment, and sometimes it's not really deserved. Mm-hmm. Um Another example of this, and I won't go into the details too much, but we did have a a smaller scale version of this kind of thing that happened in Kansas in 2012, uh, where a candidate's uh, family was friends with some prominent people in the party, and 
you know, had some things happen for them that wouldn't normally happen for Mm -hmm. a first-time candidate. And, you know, that's nice for them, um, but it's not so nice for everyone else. I mean, most of us, when we're running for our first time, don't have um, high-level, inner-circle, big-party donors write you uh, max out checks the day after you file your paperwork, and I guarantee you it's not due to this person's fundraising prowess, uh, having never been a candidate before. Yeah, most candidates have to spend a lot of time on the phone, um, you know, dialing for dollars, as it's called, and you're calling people multiple times. If you're lucky enough to catch them on the phone, they're happening to run out the door, and uh, it, it's not an easy process to fundraise. So anytime a first-time candidate um, comes instantaneously out of the, <laughs> gets yeah. like these giant donations. Yeah, that uh, that raises some eyebrows. Yeah, there's a reason for that, absolutely. And so that's a great segue. I wanted to talk about fundraising next. It's uh, really a difficult challenge, to say the least, as a Democratic candidate in Kansas to to fundraise, and the deck is quite frankly, completely stacked at the outset of the cycle. Uh, Because what happens is that the party prioritizes races. And there are one, two, or in some cases, three races that are the high profile, high priority races and get attention. And so then everyone else falls into one of two categories. Either you're kind of in Siberia and left to work it out on your own, or in some cases, uh, there have been some people who are actually blacklisted, mm-hmm. um, depending on, you know, who they're friends with, who they're working with, you know, if they have the wrong consultant or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can actually be in a situation where donors are told, don't give to this person. Yeah. And again, it's a, another example of working against our own candidates. And one of the races that is notoriously almost never a prime priority race in Kansas is the U.S. Senate race. And I was shocked in 2010 after I won the primary and we had kind of a a call about, you know, the campaign cycle that they were talking about the priorities. And not only was the U.S. Senate race not toward the top of the list, it wasn't even on the list. I was completely shocked. There were there were a list of I can't remember. It was somewhere between eight and ten priorities. And I think every race was somehow in there except for the US Senate race. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. That was that was a, a little shocking. I wasn't quite prepared for that. <laughs> and the only time in recent memory that I can remember that the US Senate race was ever made a priority was when former Congressman Jim Slattery mm-hmm chose to step forward and run for that. And so that was a completely different scenario because of course he was he'd already been a sitting congressman and then also had an element of this royal family dynamic. So in that case, yes, of course it's going to be a priority, but in any other year, not so much. Yeah. So that particular race, it's a difficult one to get candidates to run for. It's a hard race. It's a statewide race. It's a federal level race, which makes the financing reporting much more complicated than state level races. So, And as the news likes to say, that race hasn't been won by a Democrat since 1930-something. Something, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it's kind of an uphill battle going into it, and candidates know that. you know, even, you know, Orman, who ran as an independent this year, couldn't quite get over the hurdle, even though uh, people were very hopeful. 
kind of late in the race. Yeah, and there were some dynamics about his certainly, race that certainly. we talked about that were a little bit specific to to him. But, you know, speaking of that race, I felt sorry for Chad Taylor yeah. this year, yeah. who had stepped forward uh, to run for the race and to try to carry the banner for the party. And I felt like, you know, he was a bit tossed aside uh, <laughs> after the primary the and least. after the polling came out. Um, you know, they saw that, and I could see there's a, a pragmatic element of it in a way. I mean, they could see Orman at that moment was polling a little bit better. But to me, I also think it was just as much about the fact that Orman was very wealthy. Yeah. And they knew that he could put a lot of money into his own campaign, which he did end up mm-hmm. doing. And so they kind of tossed Chad to the side. And one of the things that I was really disgusted by was the fact that I seen some uh, discourse and some comments, particularly on Twitter, about how, oh, Chad Taylor didn't raise any money, he didn't have any funds. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you what, folks. Uh, if your race isn't prioritized in this state, you're just not going to raise decent money. Yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like. So I thought that was completely unfair, and it makes me just enraged when people do that and they do it very frequently because Mm -hmm. they like to try to act like oh it was all the candidate yeah they don't want the secret to get out that (laughs) it's really how the party is set up and the dynamics are set for that and the deck is really stacked against people i mean the candidates are essentially victims of the system and yet they're being blamed for that and it's really irritating and i think some people either aren't aware of it or don't want to believe it um so they, you know, like you say, they blame the candidates for not being able to raise money without kind of understanding that you have people within the party actively working against you. So, you know, there because we are a minority party, there is a smaller pool of donors within Kansas. So unless you're independently wealthy or you can bring in money from out of state or from kind of outside of the inner circle, you're really kind of left to these, you know, this small pool of, of kind of regular donors. And, um, and and like you say, they kind of wait for the party and, and people within the party, uh, you know, outside of the, the, the KDP to, you know, tell them who the priorities are going to be for that year. And that then sets the fundraising uh, results for, for those individuals. And then anybody left outside of that circle is kind of, left to their own devices and that's i think what happened to chad taylor um he didn't raise a ton of money but that's that's probably why although frankly for that race he really did fairly well considering yeah. that race is never prioritized yeah, exactly i mean he didn't raise anything on the order obviously of what was raised for the governor's race but you're not going to yeah. you know if you think about it logically if The party sets these priorities and says, these are the races that we're focusing on. And that message gets out to people, including the inner circle donors, Mm -hmm. and don't think it doesn't. Then, of course, everyone else is going to have a very hard time and not really be able to raise the kind of money. And it's it's like tying someone's legs together and then blaming them or laughing at them or shaming them because they can't walk. It's like... They're setting it up that way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I understand there are limited resources and the big donors can only do so much. And, you know, I think that we need to figure out what we can do as a state to get more people engaged and to get more Democrats donating regularly. Although that's never going to happen until people feel better about the party and feel (laughs) that the party, 
you know, really has it together and has the best interest of the party and the state in mind. I mean, you can't get people to invest if they're disgruntled and upset. I mean, that's just not going to happen. And I think you made that point uh, at one point in your series that if, you know, if you could assume that every registered Democrat in Kansas could give a small amount of money to the party, that basically creates a pretty huge bankroll for all the candidates across every race to use that you could divvy up in an appropriate way for each race and um, would basically bring everybody ahead. But there's no way with the the current uh, party dynamics and some of the individuals within the party that that people would ever trust that the they would be good stewards of that. Right, that right. So we have a long way to go before we could get to implementing something like that, unfortunately. And it's really interesting, you know, if people ever have a spare hour or two on their hands to pour over the campaign finance reports. <laughs> if You know, it's, it's not a super fun exercise unless you really love finance and numbers. But <laughs> I did that as part of, uh, writing my six-part series and it is a real eye-opener because you get a real sense of the fact that some people some candidates get an enormous amount of support from the party just a ridiculous amount <laughs> whereas other people get you know absolutely nothing and one of the things that's that's been a frustration to me is I feel like there are three groups of candidates essentially there's a group of candidates who are, you know, that group that's pretty much just completely in Siberia. They have bad demographics in their district and they're just, you know, they're not going to get any traction. They're not going to raise any money. Mm -hmm. Then there's this middle group. And this is a bit of a tricky group because you're getting a little bit of attention and you're raising a little bit of money. But the full expectation is you're going to buy into the coordinated campaign when you're in that middle Mm -hmm. group so that they can take the money and use it however they see fit. And so that's been an observation of mine and a frustration of mine that I think that a lot of candidates that buy into the coordinated campaign do not get their money's worth and that some other candidates in sort of the the top tier group if you will that are more prioritized get the benefit of mm-hmm. all of these resources and you know the idea of course is that they say oh well we can pool our money and get more as a group and that would be great if that was how it was really done but it really does not feel that way mm-hmm. uh in any way, shape, or form most of the time. And it's, you know, when someone gets, you know, triple what they bought in for and then someone else gets less than what they bought in for, it's it's frustrating for people, especially when they realize it. Now, they don't expect people to pour over the finance reports, and so they're kind of hoping that nobody notices this. (laughs) And so that's why I think that's one of the things in my series that I think uh, people were very... um, disappointed that I pointed out in very specific terms and yeah. had links to the finance report so people could see the trail of money and where where it goes. But we need to talk about this. And, yeah. and it would be one thing if those investments were completely wise and completely warranted. But as I noted in what I wrote about, I felt like they missed the mark on a lot of it. Yeah, in some cases, it seemed like they weren't spending the funds or distributing the funds strategically. It was based on kind of seniority or this person just felt like they deserved more money. Like, there there didn't seem... Well, there was a royal family yeah. element, and then there was some 
personal yeah. conflict so, elements. So there were races where, you know, certainly good quality candidates, but they were in safe districts or, you know, it was clear that they were, you know, probably going to win by a good margin, but like in a, you know, percentage-based uh, look at it, they got a lot more money than candidates who were in competitive areas where that little bit of extra right. money could have put them over the top or got them a few more points in their races. Right, and... people who actually needed yeah, the exactly. resources. Yeah, and there were two Senate candidates that lost by just a handful, yeah. really, just a few hundred votes, and it was just such such a shame. And what's really annoying to me is when you bring up these kinds of issues that people who are insiders try to pretend that either there's nothing wrong with it or that somehow the playing field is really level. And I remember one person saying to me that I could have just worked harder. (laughs) And I think that that is extraordinarily ridiculous. And one of the phrases that gets thrown around in these instances is personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I made the point that if someone is getting forty to sixty thousand dollars in party support beyond what they had to raise themselves, then that makes a huge difference and that playing field is no longer level. And I don't care how hard you work or how many doors you as an individual go out and try to knock, you know, you cannot make up for that kind of differential in funds. It's just and it's like it would be like Mitt Romney saying to someone who was born into like one of the poorest most impoverished areas of the country that, you know, even though his father was rich and his father was a governor that, you know, the playing field is just really level. And if that person had just worked harder, they could be, <laughs> you know, rich and a presidential candidate just like him. And everybody knows that that's a crock of crap. Yeah. I mean, that's just not true. Exactly. So, you know, that's an overview of, uh, you know, some of the issues that uh, I cover in uh, the first few parts of the series and we'll have to leave it there for today and probably do a part two where I discuss some of the additional issues and maybe some of the parallels with the Daily Coast piece because you know there there are some overlaps and I think it's it's so true it's trite but true that if you don't learn from history you're kind of doomed to repeat it so uh, I'm hoping that uh this continuing theme of people bringing up problems will get people to thinking more so we can make some positive changes. So as always, uh, we'll put a link out to both my series and, and the daily coast piece, the daily coast piece. And that will be on sapphirewire.com. Okay. Well, thanks everyone. Talk to you next time. Until next time.